0: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for June twenty eighth, twenty eighteen. The Red Court, Red Dem, and Red Hen edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington D.C.
2: Can I just but guess who's can I Just give a golf clap for that. That oh. was well you done. Liked oh, thank that? you. Yeah. Thank you very yeah, much. That was. It was really that rewarded the, the meditating on what you just said. Thanks,
0: John. Sorry. Carry That's John Dickerson on. of CBS This Morning. My favorite. Co-host of the Gab Fest.
1: Oh my! That's so mean. I <laughs> that's Emi- a few weeks. That's Listen Emily that. Bazelon
0: of the New York Times Magazine. My
1: second Outrageous. favorite co-host of the Gabfest. Second favorite. <laughs> second favorite is not not a compliment, David Plotz.
0: Uh, anyway, Emily, you're back. It's nice to <laughs> Just not see you it
1: back.
0: <laughs> it's nice to see you. You guys are both in Aspen at the Aspen Ideas Festival. On this week's Gab Fest. Whew. What news? What a week of news. Justice Kennedy retires and the Supreme Court delivers sweeping victories to conservatives on every legal battlefield and probably a bunch of others we even forgot, but especially on the travel ban. Then a Democratic socialist stomps a top ranking and still quite liberal Democrat in a primary. Does this indicate that progressives are headed for domination of the Democratic Party? Then civility. Is civility anything? Is it worth fighting for? What is it? Let's use our best NPR voices. Plus, we'll have cocktail you're, chatter. You're in
1: civility mode. You just went right toward it.
0: I'm so civil. That's, civility you're is not really. Actually. I'm in favor of civility, and yet I'm not a particularly civil person. It's, it's ironic or huh. something. Maybe contradictory. Paradoxical. Uh, But before we get to the the meat of the show, remember, we have a live show, Philadelphia. We are coming at you, Philadelphia. We are going to do a live show Wednesday, July 18th at the Keswick Theater in Glenside, Pennsylvania, just outside of the city of Brotherly Love at 7.30 p.m., slate.com slash live for tickets. Please join us, and there will obviously be a lot of news. There will be a lot of stuff to discuss And it'll be fun to do it with you there. So go to slate.com slash live to get tickets to join us on July 18th at the Keswick Theater. A monumental week at the Supreme Court. Triumph after triumph for conservatives culminating with the sweetest victory of all, the retirement of swing justice Anthony Kennedy, essentially guaranteeing his replacement by a justice, almost certain to be more conservative. So the court ruled in favor of the Trump administration and of conservatives in the travel ban case and the public sector union case and the Texas gerrymandering case, the crisis pregnancy case. I think all five, four decisions with that usual split. Right, Emily? Yep. So, Emily, this is you. You've, you have you you are not appearing on 17 different uh, television and radio shows right now so that you can be with us. It was
1: more important to be with you. Yes.
0: Okay. So what does Kennedy's resignation mean for the court? Is Roe v. Wade dead?
1: Um, Kennedy's resignation is just a huge thunderclap of an event for the Supreme Court. It probably means the Supreme Court, as we know it, will transform. You know, Kennedy has been the swing justice for 12 years since the retirement of Sandra Day O'Connor. And, you know, in occupying that center role, he moved the court to the right from where it was before, but he didn't move it always to the right. And he didn't move it giant steps to the right. And his exceptions happened to be causes that liberals deeply cherish. So Kennedy will be remembered as the champion of gay rights in a way that was deeply important to civil rights um, and to you know progressives in the country. He also protected the right to abortion in two really important ways. He was part of this compromise with O'Connor and former Justice David Souter in 1992 when he had the vote to either overturn Roe or fundamentally change it. He didn't. He opted to protect its core. And then in 2016, there was a big case with... um, it's called whole women's Health, a case out of Texas, where lots of state restrictions were purporting to protect women's health. And Kennedy joined the majority in seeing through that and seeing that, you know, the notion that closing clinics helps women and protects their health is help protects their health is just not has no factual basis. So he has stood there as a bulwark in that area. And then his other really important kind of progressive um, set of moves have been in the area of criminal defense, where he helped end the death penalty for people who commit crimes as juveniles and for people who are intellectually disabled. And there were other opinions, too. Recently, he'd called into question the constitutionality of prolonged solitary confinement and had importantly ruled against California in a case about their terrible, overcrowded prison conditions. So there were these set of concerns he had that mattered a great deal to the left and made him seem like a kind of I use the phrase guardian angel when I was writing about this yesterday. I mean, he was super fickle guardian angel because most of the time he pr- delivered the kinds of um, fifth votes that we saw this week, you know, where, We're talking about, you know, the electoral process, whether to make the vote harder or easier to access. Kennedy sided with the conservatives consistently, um, you know, for example, in helping to gut the key part of the Voting Rights Act a few years ago in the gerrymandering case that was a racial gerrymandering case out of Texas. But he, there's just no question that a Trump appointee will be more reliably, consistently conservative than Kennedy will be. And so, yes, Roe versus Wade and the right to abortion is on the line it could change in a couple ways. The court could outright overrule Roe or perhaps more cleverly and more in the kind of canny style of Chief Justice John Roberts. It could just whittle away at Roe and gut it in a way that maybe would create less of a political backlash. But we are in for a real sea change in American law. It's going to be a roller coaster ride when this new justice gets appointed. And of course, that means we're going to have a huge fight over this nomination. So maybe John well, talk about that
0: roller coaster ride implies it goes in more than one direction. <laughs> this, this is just going down. This is the down part, or the up part, depending uh, right. on your point of view. I mean,
1: maybe I should say, like from my point of view, it's going to be a very rough, rough ride to watch, to live. John,
0: let's actually talk um, a little bit about the, the political machinations here. So, famously, and in probably the most successful political gambit of our lifetimes, Mitch McConnell kept that seat that Neil Gorsuch. Occupies open. He refused to allow any hearings. He refused to allow a Senate vote in 2016. Said the election had to happen. Now there's an election coming in only 132 days. There were 267 days when Scalia died. There's no chance that Mitch McConnell is going to delay a vote. in, in this case, is there and an, is there anything that Democrats can do to stop or or slow or inveigle the appointment of a Supreme Court? justice that uh Donald Trump wants.
2: I think the short answer for Democrats at the moment is there's not there, uh, there's not much they can do um, other than to deny unanimous consent for anything to go forward in the Senate which would mean shutting every I mean they would I think the, that's the that's the like burning the ship's move. I mean not that maybe that's not. I mean that's a that would be like you'd have the Senate would have to just stop functioning period. Um and, and I don't, they I don't do think that? they could really like, do why that. Not? Well, I mean you but then the Senate couldn't then they couldn't do anything in the Senate ever.
1: So what needs to be done between well, now and November? Uh, I mean, no, I'm serious. Well, like, I what guess what needs to so be done. Doing?
2: well, I guess what what needs to be done is you've got um, Heidi Heitkamp and John Tester and Claire McCaskill all running in states where Democrats think they have a chance to hold those seats, and the electorates are, are more conservative than they would be, and that the, that electorate would probably not take kindly to shutting down the um, Senate completely. The benefit you would get. From rallying Democrats by taking such a move would in those redder states, the nine that are red states where Trump won, it probably would backfire on those candidates. And you'd probably have, uh, you know, somebody like Heitkamp would would bolt and then you then the story would be, you know, Democratic infighting. I just it, I don't think it would be politically
1: uh, it's not. viable. Well, politically,
2: it's not viable. And also they do want some stuff that they – you know, the Democratic senators in particular on like things like appropriations bills and things like that do want things that are a part of the normal, quote-unquote, functioning of the Senate.
0: But also let's assume they, they decided to deny uh, unanimous consent and they were able to delay things such that nothing was able to happen. That presumes that the Senate composition would change in 2017 enough that Democrats controlled it, which they don't – do they think that's going to happen? Do they don't think they're going to control the Senate in 27 in 2019, do they?
2: Uh not 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 anybody who's I mean it's 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 like a 100 to 1 shot. Um cuz they'd not only have to hold all their seats, they'd have to then beat Heller in Nevada.
1: He looks vulnerable in the polls.
2: Maybe. I mean, um but like... you'd also right. So you but you'd but you'd have to you'd have to run the table. And we should note that this now any Republican who needs to be encouraged to turn out, this is a turnout mechanism for Republicans. If the seat is not dealt with before the actual election, if it is dealt with before the election, it still is a tidy reminder to Republicans, many of whom voted for Donald Trump only for this reason, that he could name people to the Supreme Court, that he has a shot to name people to the Supreme Court in perhaps two other instances, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Justice Breyer retire. So he'll need the Senate to confirm that. And they'll need a majority in the Senate for those years 2019 and 2020. And so would even further lock in conservative control of the Senate. Uh, Republicans will turn out in strong numbers If they follow the behavior that they followed in 2016, where they had doubts about the presidential nominee of their party, but they overcame those doubts for the purposes of of gaining control of the Supreme Court, that bet paid off for them is paying off uh, quite handsomely.
1: And it would seem to help Republicans either way, in the sense that Democrats have already been energized. And so now this is the kind of issue that traditionally, Republicans have been more energized about.
2: That's a really, yeah, right? that's a really great. Point. I
1: mean, I, I would hope that Democrats would get energized about this. I'm, but um, whether they do or not, they were already like, you know, kind of,
0: I guess I'm not sure I, I necessarily agree with you about that, Emily, in the sense that if, if, I think if there's no justice confirmed by election day, that's a huge turnout mechanism for Republicans and it would almost certainly help them in the election, particularly in redder states and Heidi Heidkamp's race or in Claire McCaskill's race. But if there's a very conservative justice who is put on the court in the next month and it is perceived to have been jammed through, yes, Democrats are already motivated, but they can but they can be even more. more motivated. I think that will surely surely be helpful. Uh, yeah,
2: I, I think sense. that's right. I think that's right. I mean, yeah, and, and then so I don't know how we'd play this out. But given that it's likely to go through how then if you're Chuck Schumer and the Democrats, do you play this politically in a way that kind of allows this to move through the bloodstream? I mean, in other words, there isn't a fight. If you know you're going to lose, have no fight. No, create they no have energy. to have a well, they, fight because of their, their own base, base will absolutely yeah. Yeah. clobber
1: them if yeah. they don't. See, I mean, I'm not sure about shutting down the Senate. I'm yeah. going to be agnostic about that. But if they don't put up a fight, their base is going to because yeah. this is the Supreme Court.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So yeah I, this is well, for so generations.
1: So,
0: Emily, let's go back to to Kennedy for a little bit. What real practical difference do you think his retirement makes? I mean, if you if you certainly on Abortion rights, it's, it's a huge shift because undoubtedly whoever comes in will be m- much uh, more opposed to abortion rights than, than Kennedy is. But on the other issues, I mean, he's been very conservative on almost everything else. So is it—is his loss going to make that much of a difference? Because he's basically very conservative on on most of the other kinds of issues that matter.
1: So two things. It matters a lot what the reasoning is behind votes, not for the outcome in that particular case, but for what happens next. And Kennedy was a mediating kind of um, slow, like a simmer. He he was not someone who liked to make everything happen rapidly and, like, turn up the water to full boil immediately in the way that, you know, Justice Scalia famously was. He was an incrementalist. And so there are ways in which behind the scenes he tempered the kinds of rationales that the conservatives used for their five to four votes. So, for example, he did vote to uphold these racially gerrymandered redistricting maps in Texas this week. But Neil Gorsuch and Justice Thomas wanted to argue that the Voting Rights Act doesn't apply at all in redistricting, which would that's like a question that was originally settled in 1968. Like the court has assumed that the Voting Rights Act matters to redistricting for all those 50 years. And there's a whole body of law. And if we just decide that if the court just decides that is no no longer the case, that's like a huge seismic shift in law instead of just like a decision against the plaintiffs in this one case that a different majority of the Supreme Court could easily move away from. So that's the first thing that I think matters deeply. And the second is The abortion part of this, if you care about that issue, is a big deal. I mean, I wonder what you guys think of this. Jeff Tubin and um, Ellie Mistel, who's from WNYC, was saying this on the radio when I was on the radio with him on Wednesday. You can easily—they were arguing that, you know, between 20 and 24 states are going to outlaw abortion. Because what was standing between them and having that outcome was the presence of Justice Kennedy, the knowledge that a district court would— Stop that law from going into effect because the Supreme Court would strike it down. And now that is gone. And so, you know, Jeff and Ellie were arguing that, like, within a year and a half or two years, we're going to have a country where there are huge swaths of the country where there are no abortion clinics and women have to travel vast distances to have access to abortion. Now, you know, because Roe versus Wade has been such a divisive issue for so long, I guess you could argue that. Maybe, uh, you know, that kind of traveling and that kind of lack of access will either galvanize people politically in a different way or heal this breach in the country. But on the other hand, I mean, at least to me, I just don't know how women are supposed to live in a society without a right to end their pregnancies and still be free human beings on the planet. Like, I wish I could come up with that idea, but I can't. And so that part of it alone seems worth really thinking through. And I wonder, John, what you think about the politics of that. Like, are in those states that now have that freedom to make this move in those legislatures, mm-hmm. how many of them will it really be politically popular to ban abortion? I mean, certainly, they're like a whole bunch, but well, I wonder what the cow will end up being. I like.
0: mean, just, just, to John, before you answer that, just one yeah. data point, which is that I something I learned as I was doing the research is that there are 18 states that have automatic triggers such that if the Supreme Court overturns Roe, abortion is automatically outlawed in those states. So there won't yeah. even be any process. It will just happen. So so that's 18 states that we already know if the Supreme Court acts expansively will bar abortion.
2: So a couple things. One, just to your question earlier, David, I was struck by the number that um, – and Emily, tell me if this is right – but of the 13 cases in which there were 5-4 decisions – Kennedy voted with the Conservatives in all 13.
1: That's true. You're talking about this term. This term. Yes. Sorry, I sorry, mean, it is it's a very funny moment for liberals to mourn Kennedy. He delivered nothing for yeah. them this term. And, you know, to me, the most important things the Supreme Court is doing are the cases that affect the electoral process and the chances that we are going to have a free mm-hmm. and fair vote. And on all of those cases, and not just mm-hmm. this term, he voted with the Conservatives. And this year, he had, you know, teed up with great fanfare back in 2004, a challenge to partisan gerrymandering. He looked like he was just waiting for some social scientists to come up with a valid measure so that he could intervene and stop both parties from redistricting in a way that turns like partisan advantage into an extreme sport. Then, faced with these cases from Wisconsin and Maryland, which were well positioned for a big decision, he totally punted and there's just no question that his replacement is going to close the door to partisan gerrymandering challenges, I think.
2: So to your question, David, I don't know what the answer of it, to it is. I mean, you've just put the best fact or most interesting fact on the table, which is this automatic mechanism. Um, if local efforts start to feel like an overplaying of the hand, if, if settled, if what a lot of people, for a lot of people, the fact that abortion is not talked about all the time is kind of, you know, they don't want to look at it. They don't want to have to deal with it. Totally. If, if the mechanism that forces them to deal with it um, comes from they may they may not like that it's coming from the conservative side. So and if it feels like a general overreach that attaches to the court, to President Trump, you could see a way in which it motivates um, liberal voters. But I think they're going to be motivated more by the president than anything else. I,
0: I just don't understand. I mean, Emily, you you can speak to this better than I can this is, we, we live in a world, in a country, where increasingly it is incredibly difficult for women to get access to birth control, that, they, that at every turn someone is trying to prevent them from doing it. The pharmacist is, is declining to fill the prescription. The employer is saying they have religious objection to it. Their insurer won't cover it. And now it's the, the, the constraint on abortion, the constraint on a, a, abortion drugs. If you do want an abortion being delayed, having to sit through some nonsense lies about the, the effects of abortion on you. I don't know why, I don't know why women uh, who have to consider the possibility of, childbirth, of childbearing uh, either because they want to do it or they don't want to do it, why they're not enraged and every single one of them isn't voting on this issue. It is, it's insane to me.
1: Well, I mean, some women are enraged. There are a lot of women who think abortion is sinful and they don't support access to it. And sometimes when they're confronted with, you know, uh, pregnancy and unplanned pregnancy in their own lives or families, they change their mind. And sometimes they don't. So, you know, I don't think women are united on this front At all. I also think that...
0: But not just abortion. I mean, it's this birth control. It's like, okay, make abortion illegal, but let me have birth control (laughs) so that I don't have to get pregnant.
1: Right. And if the people who – I mean, there there is almost no space to stand in, in this country where people say, um, I believe in outlawing or restricting abortion, but I want to make the most effective forms of long-acting contraception as available as possible. Like, please, yes, let's make it really easy and cheap for everybody to get IUDs and um, other long-acting co- – yeah, no, that constituency doesn't exist. I mean, look – you're right that women's sexual freedom is on the line, and that there are ways in which the Trump administration has been um, nibbling away at it uh, in terms of reducing funding for Planned Parenthood, the non abortion work Planned Parenthood does, and also um, you're also right about contraception becoming harder to get or harder to pay for. And maybe this will produce a kind of groundswell of. Women, more women, seeing that, you know, it's our lives that we need to be thinking about and voting on. But I yeah. think it's complicated. I think people's ideas about all of these issues get baked into their more tribal identities. And right. the women who are supporting President Trump feel like he is embattled. They feel like he's their guy. They're culturally alienated from a lot of the people on the pro choice side of the equation. And I. I don't know. I mean, it might change people who, you know, the kind of the people who stay home might feel like this is really a reason to go vote. I just wish I wasn't so worried about the ways in which we're making it harder for them to vote.
2: I think your point about the cultural alienation from the people who are on the pro-choice side is a very uh, is a really astute Mm -hmm. one and one that that applies more broadly to probably something we'll get to in the civility conversation but is the sense of the Trump team being embattled and dis- and that and the and the argument that the culturally powerful figures who are on the other side of Trump create a rallying effect and so that's a larger version of what you're talking about on this specific issue can we just tally for a moment the the possibility here on the court and what it could mean depending on the way in which the 2018 election rolls out, and we'll get to that more in the 2018 conversation, but just if you think that the president will get his nominee which uh, confirmed, which just seems likely, then he will have named 20% of the court. The court will be a locked-in conservative court. The president who sees and who came into the office with a, with his own theories about executive power that were beyond, you know, arguably – uh, any other president we've had in the modern era who continues to get even more expansive in his feeling about what he should be able to do as president and who has utterly transformed his party and the leaders in Congress to be uh, in accordance with what he's doing and not fulfill either their, their traditional role or their constitutional role but who are really four square behind him. You see a, a, a president who has unity and power of a kind we haven't seen – You know, I think – you certainly go back to Johnson, but I mean, Johnson's Democratic Party, Johnson was making more deals with Republicans than, I mean, in some cases. He had a split Democratic Party that he had to massage and deal with and handle. There is no split like that in the Republican ranks of any consequence for, for President Trump. So this is really a potential for an extraordinary historical consolidation for the president if his his Republicans retain control of the House and the Senate.
0: John, just to continue on that theme, I do think there's a way in which the calcification of the court as a conservative institution it's been seen it has very strong approval ratings and it's been seen as a fairly neutral arbiter even though it's been fairly conservative for a long time but it's been seen beca- largely because of Kennedy's presence as a as a counterweight to mm-hmm. a lot of what uh, people see as the excesses of both left and right and i i do worry that the concretization of the court as a conservative institution is going to be pretty damaging to people's sense of democracy as a whole on the left, that people are going to be very skeptical because you have this incredibly expansive executive, you have a totally supine Congress that will not do anything. And then a court which is affirming that which the president and that which conservatives want to do. And that could be quite disillusioning. So I worry about that. And that actually leads to the first of my last two questions, which is one of the things that I hear Democrats talking about now, Emily, and I don't quite understand it, because I thought this was a New Deal failure, and it was illegal, is uh, expanding the size of the court that so that it's clear that Democrats cannot overturn the conservative majority by the usual means, because unless they can, they can, you know, force Justice Thomas to retire with a Democratic president, they're Hmm. not going to be able to do it. So there's discussion about making it a bigger court. Is that realistic?
2: How does that happen?
1: They just could put more people on the same way FDR tried. The Constitution doesn't – well, the Constitution doesn't specify the number of justices. I mean, it would be a hugely out-of-order – Move right. Yeah, like, yeah.
2: That's what I mean. I mean, I get, I get, the, I get the theory, but other than well, having a magic wand, no, the how practice does it go? is
1: what Mitch McConnell did. I mean, you think of it as a counterpoint. You think of it as like Mitch McConnell broke all mm-hmm. norms, played constitutional hardball by refusing to give Merrick Garland a hearing, sure, sure. and the only way to retain, to restore balance on the court is to add some new justices. No, I get that, but that that's requires
2: retaining control, get, getting control yeah. of the Senate back. I mean, it's like, <laughs> well, but okay, well, no, but you need but, the
1: presidency if you
2: have the presidency in the Senate,
0: is it a trivial thing?
1: A trivial thing? It's highly untrivial. Do you mean if it's possible? Is it possible? Yeah. Is At it that just point, a matter will of, there be pressure? Just a matter the, of saying now,
0: I nominate a, our 10th Supreme Court Justice, Emily Bazelon. Our 11th Supreme I Court Justice, so. John I Dickerson.
1: It, Number I don't 12, see what the, <laughs> Jocelyn. I don't see what the legal barrier is to it. And maybe there is one um, that was put in place after FDR's court packing, but there's no constitutional amendment that specifies the number of justices, so I don't think so. I think we're just talking about deeply embedded norms and expectations in politics. And look, this in itself, this conversation being live is a kind of check and restraint on the court because Chief Justice Roberts, while you know, is while a far more conservative figure than Justice Kennedy, cares about the image of the court. He does not want his legacy to be the court kind of going down in flames and becoming this wholly partisan institution. And so what he is going to try very hard to do when he gets his reliable fifth vote is to write the kinds of opinions that do a lot of... um, Change without seeming to do a lot of change. So I don't think that um, Roe versus Wade will be directly overturned. I don't think those trigger mechanisms in those 18 states will go into place. I think he will open the door for states to pass laws that effectively you know close down clinics and and um, eliminate the right that Roe has preserved. but I don't think it will be the kind of direct acts of aggression that would put the court so out of sync with the country that you end up with something like court packing.
2: I think as a political possible political cudgel out there the idea that is if if you lose the senate and the and democrats win the i mean if the democrats win the senate and the presidency which you know that's a lot of hurdles you got to clear it seems like it's two things it's a message to the court that you just articulated but then it's also it's some reason to hope for democrats uh, and re- organize and rally and all of that to turn out in these elections in the interim because the promise of it is whether it would be possible or not is not just elect a bunch of Senate Democrats and a a Democratic president and then hope conservatives retire. It's actually do something affirmative and do so, so that it it's as a just a purely political turnout mechanism, even if you believe it could never work. It's more energizing than, well, let's get everybody in place and then just hope a conservative retires.
0: All right, Emily, very quickly, last question, because we haven't talked about some of the substantive, huge substantive cases. Travel ban case was a big deal. And I think a lot of people, including me, were struck by the contrast between the masterpiece cake shop decision and the travel ban decision, where in the one case, in the masterpiece cake shop, the court found that the comments of a single person on the Civil Rights Commission in Colorado so poisoned the well that this, baker, this, that this baker was a victim of religious prejudice. And on the other hand, they found that the president's repeated, absolutely clear, crystal clear, targeted comments about Muslims did not poison the well when it came to the policy about who to restrict coming into the country. So how did that um, contradiction get reconciled? Or it didn't? It
1: did not. I am not going to try to square those things. I do think that was deeply problematic, Um, as Justice Sotomayor pointed out in her, in my view, enormously effective dissent in the travel ban case. I mean, look, the travel ban case is the beginning of what you were laying out a few minutes ago. It's a court not standing up to a president who put on the record his um, anti-Muslim prejudice. And, not protecting people for that reason. Now, there were a lot of high-minded sounding legal rationales for that all available in Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion. And we're talking about the area of immigration law and um, issuing visas that there's no question presidents have a lot of power. That's how Congress designed it when they passed the Immigra- and Immigration and Nationality Act. Um, so in that context, on in terms of The pure underlying power of the executive, Roberts was on strong footing. The problem was that in order to stay there, he had to be only looking at the text of this third version of the travel ban instead of considering all of the um, presidential rhetoric that had gone into it. Beforehand and afterward, right? I mean, President Trump, as Sotomayor pointed out, had many opportunities to take back what he'd said, and he never has. So, you know, that was what the conservative majority went for. They kind of held their nose. Kennedy was part of that decision. Both he and Roberts basically said, Without naming Trump, it would be nicer if the president shut up and stopped um, expressing this, like, horrifying religious prejudice. But we're not going to do anything about it. And so the beginning of um, a a court that is willing to go along with the president of its party, who is— Certainly, out of step with what many of us think are core constitutional values. Even Roberts and Kennedy deciding that they were powerless, particularly Justice Kennedy, who's been such a judicial suprem- supremacist in other contexts. There's there's something hard to take about that part of the decision.
0: Whew. Well, we could talk about this truly for hours, but let's let us move on. Um, man, we really could talk about it for hours. <sighs>
1: But you just prevented
0: it. I just prevented that, yes. (laughs) Slate Plus members, (laughs) of course, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And uh, today, we're going to talk about what happened to Emily when she wrote a piece about whiteness for the New York Times. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member and to find out what happened to Emily when she wrote that piece. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family, give the moms in your life an aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GabFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. A battle is raging in blue America between teal and navy, sky blue and the deep, deep blue of the ocean. This week, a candidate who is so blue that she is red. Had her night on Tuesday night. Progressives had maybe their biggest victory in in this campaign. A democratic socialist, twenty eight year old Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I've never heard her name spoken, so I hope I pronounced it correctly. A leftist outsider defeated ten term incumbent in Queens and a Queens and Bronx district, Joe Crowley. He was also the chairman of the House Democratic Caucus, that made him the fourth ranking Democrat in the House. It was it's a very safe district, so. Ocasio-Cortez will be elected to Congress. She will be the youngest woman ever elected to Congress, certainly the youngest Latina woman. What is it? There's something about her, a bartender, a waitress recently, a a Bernie Sanders volunteer, and just was galvanized to to run in this district. And Crowley, who was at 56, was the youngster in the House. Democratic leadership is out. (laughs) Progressives also had a good night elsewhere. Ben Jealous, former head of the NAACP, won the Democratic nomination for governor in Maryland, although that'll be a tough race to win because there's a very popular Republican governor. So, John, why did Ocasio-Cortez, who is a novice who's quite young, running against a very respected and quite liberal member of Congress, why did she win?
2: Well, um, <clears throat> I'll give you what, what appears to be the case, and I don't want to p- pretend that I was uh, covering this race. There's one of the, nothing you hated more when you were covering races like this than somebody who wasn't covering the race opining about it. <clears throat> but it appears to be what happened is that she had uh, a combination of things. One, uh, Crowley was this is a this is a plus 29 district Democratic district I think it's it's as democratic a district as Maxine Waters's district. Crowley started as a part of the de- older Democratic machine, uh, Irish Paul active in the district in a way that kind of old time New York politicians were. So when people have have said well, he kind of fell asleep didn't see this coming, uh, I think that that's clearly part of it. There was a th- there was a debate in which he didn't attend. She used he sent a surrogate. She used that to say he wasn't awake. He wasn't participating. But he was not. But he was active in New York politics and active in his um, in his, his district. Money. In his district. Yeah. Um, and 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 so anyway, but she was a, she was local um, of the district Connected to the um, that portion of the electorate that she could energize, um, she she wasn't just sort of an arivist, and she was she's very good and very compelling and makes a very strong case for her policies. She's coming out of the district, which when Crowley started was not minority majority, and now is.
1: And they had redrawn the lines in 2010. This was his first contested primary since yeah. then, I think, and
2: first contested primary in eight years, maybe, yeah. So she was a great fit with the district. The district was a very liberal district. And, you know, to be a white establishment male is not the thing you want to be in democratic politics right now. Uh, And she was very effective in using that against him. Um, And then I guess, uh, and then we can address the question of whether this means what this means outside of the actual district. Um, But, um, you know, she was a good politician who ran a good race.
0: So Emily, she did run as a democratic socialist. She ran for on Medicare for All, abolishing ICE, I think, a federal jobs guarantee, maybe free college. And I, th- I think it's a classic case of where running as a, a really strong progressive makes sense because it's a safe district. They know they're going to win it. Do you think that these issue, the, the issues she represents, in particular around Medicare for All uh, and a more expansive jobs guarantee from the federal government, are those actually winning issues?
1: Yeah, it's such a good question. So, the jobs guarantee I find really interesting. I mean, it's tied up in conversations about raising the minimum wage and expanding the earned income tax credit. And I feel like I'm agnostic about which of or how many of those levers to pull, how. But the notion of addressing inequality and the problem of stagnant wages, which we still have, even though we have um, the, uh, such low unemployment, that all seems super compelling to me. I really wonder about Medicare for all as the hill to die on for Democrats and here's why. There are other ways of addressing the problems with our healthcare system that seem more incremental and thus less scary. To me, the Medicaid option seems like a really obvious thing to try where, you know, a lot of the complaints from Obamacare, people who have the insurance they get through healthcare exchanges made possible by Obamacare, complain about their high premiums, their high payments. You look over at Medicaid, you see, you know, much lower or non-existing co-payments and, you know, a smaller network of care providers. It's not fancy health insurance, but it covers the basics. And so I wonder if it would be smarter for Democrats um, to be pushing that less exciting, but more feasible alternative, uh, and less, I wish we'd also say less expensive alternative, because I've never heard a good explanation of exactly how we're supposed to pay for Medicare for all, given our current healthcare costs. I mean, if we want to figure out how to like, really, really bend the cost curve in the way that other countries, you know, in Europe and Canada have and spend much less of our resources on healthcare, then like, fine. But in a world of, you know, exorbitant American healthcare costs, I really wonder. So anyway, that's my. Two cents about that. And I also feel a certain sense of like dread about having the next election cycles be all about healthcare policy. Again, mm-hmm. it's just. Not my favorite thing.
2: This is setting up a a really interesting debate inside the Democratic Party. It goes something like this, which is if you look at the 7th District of Texas, where the Democratic establishment backed the more, quote-unquote, moderate candidate over— Laura Moser. Over Laura Moser, who was the sort of Sanders-type candidate, although the the distinctions were pretty thin. But Moser was a Medicare for all. Lizzie Fletcher was not. Lizzie Fletcher won. The Democrats backed her, the argument being— in these districts that are up for grabs, that will give us control of the House, we need to run, as more Moser put it, the more liberal candidate, you know, people who are slightly less objectionable than Republicans. But we need to win people who can win in their districts and can uh, help deliver us the House. And that's where the battleground is in these districts that are close. The alternative argument is we need candidates as Democrats, so the argument goes, who are like Moser or who are more um, liberal, who can turn out the vote, stand for something. Follow, in a sense, the Trump model, which is stop worrying about like fine tuning your politics, have candidates who really believe loud and proud in something that turns out the Democrats and that will deliver uh, Democrats to the promised land. And that debate, you know, is ongoing. And just got another. You know, to the extent that Moser was her loss was a uh, an argument for the strategy of the establishment Washington Democrats. This victory this week is a establishment for the, or is an argument for the other side.
1: Should we also think of Medicare for All as expanding the debate of possibility, not necessarily being where the policy outcome? Right. I mean, it's not right. Like it's the Overton window. It, it's
0: the Overton window. The
1: Overton window, precisely. When yeah. I, mean, I think of it in terms of the Overton window and expanding. Explain what's, to
2: people
0: what the Overton yeah. Window well, is. the Overton
1: window is like what's the realm. Of of debate that gets considered as like normal and regular. When I think about it that way, I feel much more comfortable with so, it. And so, the
2: idea of it tactically is you throw open the window because you're never going to get it, but you get something less right. than it. And if you take it off the table right away, you won't get anything close. All right, uh, just
0: to wrap this topic up. So Crowley's loss takes out hilariously the junior member of the Democratic leadership in the House. The other three: Nancy Pelosi. Steny Hoyer and James Clyburn are, I think, 168 years old, 312 years old and 264 years old, respectively. Um, no, they're they're just ancient. They are ancient. They're all uh, <laughs> well, in their upper 70s. They've time. been there forever. And it's and uh, so Crowley, who was 56, was the junior member. I, it is a, it to me it is a really terrible sign for Democrats that a I whom, you know, I'm not like a I'm not a congressional junkie by any means, but I had Basically, never heard of Crowley. So the fact that the me neither uh, never B that I can basically not name I can name Adam Schiff and Ted Lieu and but that's about it. You're when only, I think,
1: oh no, you don't have a congressman,
0: uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton. <laughs> but she's... you know Jamie Raskin, she, who's she the over the, the border that I can name Barbara. I can barely name any Democratic members of the House. Is I suspect a big problem for Democrats as they think about what's going to happen when they take over the House. So. John, how did Democrats fix this? Or is this a problem that just naturally fixes itself? That that, that once, well, if Pelosi uh, doesn't get, isn't the speaker, somebody will become the speaker and that person will be elevated.
2: Well, again, this goes back to this conversation within the Democratic Party. So when, when there was a push, and you always have to wonder about these pushes, the same is true for Republicans when there were the quote unquote pushes to replace John Boehner. Nobody kind of asked the second question, which was with who? And that immediately... Stopped all talk of pushes to replace John Boehner. Now, ultimately, he was forced out by a movement, uh, but that was because he resigned rather than th- there being an actual alternative. And I had the point here with Pelosi is there's always, there's never been an alternative. Crowley was not an alternative. He raised a million bucks for Democratic candidates. Pelosi raised $88 million for Democratic candidates. She's both a, a very powerful inside player and knows how to raise a great deal of money for Democrats. And to the extent that Democrats have enough money in their coffers, which they need more, according to their Strategists to to compete in all the places that they can possibly compete in 2018, they need Nancy Pelosi like crazy. But for this long term problem, they need a whole fresh bench. And Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, one of the things about her that at least that her moment on stage uh, here has shown is that she is dynamic talented, did not swing at uh, a lot of the pitches thrown to her that that offered her chances to attack the establishment in Washington. When Dave Brat beat Cantor and won his race, and when, uh, you know, Rand Paul was elected to the Senate, they said, you know, We're, this is a message to the establishment of our party, which creates additional infighting. Younger candidates like this, all of the women who are running and winning in Democratic politics— they are the new – they are the They are the future of the party. Some of them come from military service, which is also another really interesting piece of this story. But how that gets from the moment you have now where you have a leadership that's very old, the Crowley thing always seemed implausible to me, not because he wasn't a good Paul and wasn't working towards it, but was the Democratic Party, which is really – Now has more minority members than white male members, minority and female members than white male members. Really going to be represented by a a white male? I just didn't think that was plausible for the future. Older white male. I don't
1: think we have to rule out all the white men. I just feel like the that. I mean, the the Democratic Party needs to be having the face of its generational and demographic shift.
2: Right there. That's a much more uh, pithy way of putting it.
0: It's interesting if you look at women women in Ocasio Cortez's generation. Lean Democratic 68-24. It's an incredible shift, whereas men are still 50-50.
3: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. First ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. So
0: if I had a restaurant, I would serve anyone who came in because... It would undoubtedly be a bad restaurant, and I would be desperate for customers. But you
1: would have such a good restaurant. That is total underselling of your cooking and your judgment about food, both of which are excellent. Oh,
0: well, thank you. That's nice of you to say. All right. Uh, that was, it was, it, was, uh, was light OTs. It was self-deprecation, dishonest self-deprecation, the purpose of advancing the, the discussion. In any case, the Red Hen of Lexington, Virginia, became internationally famous this week when its owner at the behest of her staff, evicted Sarah Huckabee Sanders from her dining room because uh, she and her staff were uncomfortable with Sanders' culpability in an administration that is doing such wicked things to immigrants and to children and others as well. The Sanders episode followed uh, Stephen Miller being jeered at a Mexican restaurant in D.C. and also Homeland Security Secretary Nielsen also being heckled and jeered and basically driven out of a Mexican restaurant in D.C., So there's been uh, and there's been other things that have followed. It has prompted a huge debate this week over civility in politics and let us, I think, pause it to begin with just to get it out of the way. This is such bad faith hypocrisy um, from those on the right because the president is the most uncivil politician of any of our lifetimes. And he is he is a he's a made a career of being uncivil and rude and cruel and vicious to people, and so so the idea that that it is um, that civility is is in question because Democrats are the ones who are who are uh, violating it is ludicrous. It is clearly the president has gone much further in this uh, than anybody else. And also I would you know there of course, there are many other examples that people have pointed out that there was a baker who refused to serve Vice President Biden a few years ago who was himself lionized by the right and was called introduced Paul Ryan it, at a rally. What's was that?
2: it that he would refuse to serve him or refused to take, a, or didn't want to take a picture? Well,
0: him? they refused to let, yeah, they, but they wouldn't let him come to the bakery. Essentially. They said, we don't want you to come oh, to the bakery, okay. but it's a, it's, yeah, it's, it wasn't the same as Biden going in his private life. That's true. It was, a, it was a public event. So, so I think it is clear that this discussion should not be at all framed around the issue of, is this Democrats have Democrats violated rules of civility? It's really more like, is this a problem overall? and And clearly, uh, both sides have there are people on both sides who have done this. And I think that the misdeeds, the incivility is far greater on the right because of the president than it has been on the left. Do you think this is a is this a crisis? Is civility? Is civility a value that is important in politics these days?
1: I feel torn about this. On the one hand, I'm not so excited in the rudeness and cruelty of President Trump's way of doing things becoming in any way normalized or, like, baked into the fabric of our politics. Like, that is really disastrous and bad. On the other hand, I didn't have a problem with any of these um, incidents because I think that we have precious few ways to express our disagreement right now that are actually meaningful and so— I could understand the frustration and kind of level of objection that these incidents all reflected and and why people wanted to express them in this way and you know asking Sanders to leave a restaurant isn't the same as like throwing tomatoes at her. I mean we're talking about a peaceful kind of Protest, Um, and so that matters a lot to me in this. Once anything starts to cross the line into like physical confrontation or or threats of violence, then I completely shift. And maybe the problem with um, the position I'm taking right now is that you're opening the door and walking a few steps down that path. And so the line I'm trying to draw won't really exist in a clear way, and I should be more worried about that. Here's the one other thing. What I also wonder about is the power of social shunning. So, you know, when I read about like parties on the Hamptons where some, you know, Democratic socialite is inviting Jared and Ivanka um, to come and like schmooze and rub elbows with Chuck Schumer, that I find absolutely enraging, actually, because I would imagine that it would matter to Jared and Ivanka not to get invited to those parties. And it seems like that upper crust world has a chance to enforce some social norms and and impose a cost on policies that are hurting so many people. I feel like if you believe that the Trump administration is really hurting people, you should not be including people on your guest list who are crucial to that endeavor. Uh, this other kind of the, the particular kinds of incivility we're talking about, of course, are a little different from that um, and and more problematic. Although, like I said, they didn't really bother me. But John, they probably bothered you.
2: Well, I I think there's so many different pieces of this. I think that um, I mean, just as a human matter, I tend to want people to be civil. I want to be civil to other people and want them to be civil to me.
1: In fact, you but, are very civil. <laughs> you live that every day. <laughs>
2: The, the thing of it is, though, our government and our politics—first of all, our country was founded, and we will celebrate um, next week, in an act of incivility. When you throw the tea into the harbor, you are not being civil. Revolutions, not civil. And then the founders created a government that embedded in it and was designed— with incivility in mind. They knew we would behave like dogs. They knew ambition would fight ambition. And so they said, let's separate the powers, let's have everybody fight it out, but create a system in which they can fight it out but not resort to force of arms, right? Fight it out without shooting each other. So incivility is baked into our system, not because we think it's awesome, although I think you can make a case that the zigzag pattern of progress of the American story is a result of occasionally people say being incivil. The other expression that comes into play here is when you wrestle with a pig, you're not supposed to wrestle with a pig because you get dirty and the pig enjoys it. It's clear that that President Trump is highly skilled at um, using diminishing nicknames, untruths, and so forth to act in an uncivil way uh, against his opponents. So why would you engage in a battle on the exact same terms that he has been successfully good at? So any act of incivility, whether it's at the at the Donald Trump-Maxine Waters level or the restaurateur level or or the chanting at a rally level should have some theory behind it, that to the extent that it is just purely an act of impulse, an act of wielding power, an act of domination, it strays from the civil, the incivility that was uh, sanctioned and, in fact, designed by the founders.
0: All right, I want to make three quick points. First of all, uh, to your last point there, John, what was interesting about the restaurateur, the Red Hen owner, is that it was a private act. This was not something she right. publicized. She It was publicized. Uh, an employee of hers wrote, Something on, on Facebook, and then Sarah Sanders publicized it. But it was not; it wasn't committed as an act of of public uh, disobedience or public uh, incivility. It was it was a it was a private act. So I do think that that she deserves um, that deserves to be noted. Two, but two other points. One is one reason why tactically incivility on the part of Democrats and towards Trump administration officials is an ineffective strategy was on display this week, which is that. The cause about which this incivility occurred is the separation of children. It's the wicked, wicked crime that our government is committing towards the most vulnerable and innocent people on the planet right now. It is disheartening that we spent the week or much of the week and political uh, journalism spent much of the week uh, moaning and distressing over the fact that Sarah Huckabee Sanders ate at a different restaurant. And that was a huge distraction from the thing that we were all exercised about last week. And it is it is manifestly the case that in a much more effective act of disobedience would be, if you want to change policy, would be related to these children, would be at the location where these children are, would be aimed at helping these children. By, by making Sarah... Sanders, at least a partial victim, making her being able to portray herself as a partial victim. It's a complete distraction from that which you want to accomplish, which is the reuniting of children with their families and the humane treatment of these migrant families. So it, Although, I, think,
1: I mean, the seat, the Customs and Border Patrol did back down this week. I'm not saying it was because of um, Sarah Sanders and her restaurant. It was but not I think because of Sarah a-
0: Sanders and her restaurant. It was because of other other light being shined on it that is now less, less bright.
1: I, right, uh, but I think also the country has like rejected this approach. I mean, not universally, but the public oh, Are the children you
2: know, reunited? Well that's yeah,
0: there's there's
1: like five hundred of them. They're working on the other two thousand. I believe me, I mean, I am completely with you on wickedness and horror, and it is really kind of unspeakable what we've done and um what has been done in our name to these kids, it's and families. It's terrible. I am interested, though, that the Trump administration has backed down off of some of the worst parts of it. And I wonder—it's hard to know exactly what all the factors are that went into that change, but it is one of the only times that we've seen them back away like this.
2: To your tactical point, David, I think the—and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think it would— be useful to explain the distinction between private act and public leaving aside the morals for a second tactically a pro- there's a difference between what you do privately in a restaurant and what a a party in the minority should do yes. publicly yeah. as a matter of strategy yeah. to gain advantage
0: yeah, yeah. and I, and the, so so i want to make one other final sort of separate point which is that one of the reasons why i think the left is caught in this bind around it and where why um Incivility is so attractive, is that the essentially the institution that the left controls in this country right now is the culture, and restaurants are part of the culture, uh, and uh, you know your Hollywood stars are part of the culture, and uh, and as a result, uh, the the forms of protest that liberals are using most vociferously are ones that are cu- cultural forms of protest where you have. People griping at Mike, not griping, that's a belittling word. People chastising Mike Pence at a performance of, of Hamilton or uh, Sam B. Uh, Sam B. And it's, you know, I don't think that the people who are, who are committing these acts are wrongheaded. And I think their, their heart is in the right place and they're, certainly their ideas is in the right place. As it happens when people don't, I think the public at large does not really want to hear celebrities doing this. And the culture. I the,
1: totally uh, agree. And when we talk about cultural alienation, I yeah. mean, I just keep going back to interviews I did with Republican college educated women who voted for Donald Trump and were so pissed that Katy Perry had been telling them to vote for Hillary and they just felt like betrayed and also just irritated that she had any kind of opinion.
2: Yeah, and that that becomes— That the, she was pushing on that. And that's right a more powerful governing factor in their behavior than anything else. One other thing I'd just like to throw in there is people, I think, rightly bemoan the overemphasis on the— Sarah Sanders being disinvited from the restaurant. I get it. It, very, it makes perfect sense to me. It's something we can all uh, participate opinion. in, have an opinion in. We kind of feel and and recognize those feelings even with members of our, our our own family. But you have to recognize that part of the affirmative design of what is going on here is to bait, and, to bait people and create those uh, uh, kinds of conversations that lead to the cultural positions that Emily's talking about. So if you're a tactician who is has the interests of the Democrats at heart, you have to basically bake into your analysis, it seems to me, that these kinds of these kinds of over, re, over coverage of these kinds of stories will happen. Uh, you can't rely on restraint in the culture. And therefore, it, uh, this is yet another argument for your point, David. It seems to me from a tactical perspective to keep the focus on the underlying value that is being challenged, um, which in this case was the separation of children from their parents and and not expect that the press won't cover the shiny object of the moment.
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter when you guys are uh, at your fancy schmancy fancy pants Aspen idea festival cocktail parties. And don't try to pretend that they're not cocktail parties because I've been there. There are cocktail parties. What are you going to be chattering about to your fellow thought leaders? John.
1: What have you got against cocktail parties all of a sudden? Cocktail parties are I know. Fun. Cocktail chatter <laughs>
2: is uh, I don't know. designed There's... around them. Jeez, you're just sorry <laughs> you're just, not here. I'm We're not sorry there. you're not here, too. I'm not there. <laughs> um, what can I say? We
1: missed you. I'm sad you're not
2: here. I'm uh, chatting about something I learned about uh, last night, which I didn't know existed, and it's one of those things where how could I not have known? And so perhaps people hear this and say, oh, I've known about that for ages, and you moron. Anyway, um, it's something called VIP Kid which is a Chinese company that has signed up 25,000 teachers in America. And they're not all, not all of them are current teachers, not all of them are even accredited teachers, but 25,000 teachers, people in America who teach Chinese children how to speak English. And it takes place over sort of essentially like Skype. They are classes two, two to three 25-minute sessions each week. And basically there is this army of teachers helping Chinese kids learn across the globe and it just seemed fascinating to me that you'd have these connections with you know somebody sitting at their computer table in the middle of Texas somewhere and then a young kid in Beijing somewhere learning to learning English and it felt like something, there's no, I don't think there's a, um, it now operates in 35 countries, but I don't know if there's an American equivalent. Um, but the distance learning thing has always seemed kind of more promise than reality. And the Chinese seem here to have been able, the company now has a $3 billion valuation. They seem to have figured out a way to have this work, um, at some level anyway, in um, hooking up resource to need, even when it's all the way across the globe. Emily.
1: I feel like I can't let the week pass without some mention of the Supreme Court decision, which has seriously diminished the influence of public sector unions. Um, This is a 5-4 decision. The opinion was by Justice Samuel Alito, which was entirely fitting because Alito essentially called for this case six years ago. And what happened was that the court um, overturned a precedent from the 1970s called Abood, in which um, at that time the court said, look... Unions can charge dues to all of the people they represent, all the people who are going to benefit from their collective bargaining. And they have to give p- back, or they can't charge the part of the dues that would go to the political activities of the union, because the First Amendment protects the rights of people not to have their, sp- not to be forced to speak slash contribute money to a cause they don't believe in. But all these folks still have to pay the part that goes to pay for collective bargaining, and that's just been part of how public sector unions have funded themselves and have been able to represent everybody in a particular. Um, profession or field. And and I should also add, states have chosen to do it this way. We were talking about twenty two states that affirmatively wanted to give public sector unions this power. So the Supreme Court overruled a boot and said that this issue of compelled speech extended to all the dues that unions were collecting and and mattered more than what we think of as the free rider problem, you know, which is kind of obvious here. Like once you're you can get all the benefits of union membership without paying for it, some people are not going to pay for it because they have other things to do that seem more pressing with their money. You know, there are a couple things here. In an ideal world, we would not be relying as heavily on public sector unions as we do for a lot of, like, Democratic Party, liberal cause-making. We would have more powerful private sector unions, since that's the area where, you know, unions are going up against big corporations. But this is the world we live in. and, And given that it's the world we live in, what Alito has and the conservatives have very successfully done is strike another blow, another partisan blow in the political arena with this decision. And, you know, this decision, it's in combination with all the other moves the Supreme Court made or didn't make this term and last term and all the way back to Citizens United that have just changed our political process in a way that benefits very wealthy people and and tends to benefit Republicans. And That is a pattern which, if you care about democracy, should disturb you because it is going to make—it puts more pressure on the fairness of our elections at a moment when they could not matter more.
0: All right. My chatter. Two bits of jolliness in this quite gruesome week. I have two really cheerful things to talk about. First of all, you probably have seen it, but if you haven't, uh, James Corden of The Late Late Show— has an episode, a long episode of his Carpool Karaoke with Sir Paul McCartney of the Beatles this week. And he takes McCartney to Liverpool and they drive around in a car and sing Beatles songs together and visit Penny Lane and visit McCartney's old house where he grew up, which he hadn't been back to in 50-some years. It is just a big glass of sunshine. I don't even like the Beatles. And I found this completely delightful to watch because McCartney is charming and kind of self deprecating and heartfelt. And he's, the story about it, what how he wrote Let It Be, which they then sing is beautiful, beautiful little story. It ends with a surprise concert in a local pub. And it's it's just a delight. And you 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 cannot possibly if you like the Beatles at all, you should certainly watch it. And even if you don't like the Beatles, as I am proof positive, you should probably watch it. It's just joy. Have you guys seen that?
2: I've no, seen I'm parts excited. Of it. it's, yeah. It's, it's amazing. Real. And the and the Surprise concert is a bit of an echo of the surprise concert the Beatles held when they were recording Let It Be on the um, Rooftop.
0: There you go. John Dickerson brings some musical history.
2: Second thing, uh, log log rolling for Atlas
0: Obscura, but it's a really worthy log roll this time. So the world is wide and wonderful and strange. And one of the things that we do is that we take our readers and, and I hope you to see and experience the world's hidden wonders and special places and behind the scenes that amazing places. We take unusual trips and we just announced our lineup of 2019 trips and it's uh, amazing. So at atlasobscura.com slash trips. So I want you to come travel with us. We're going to retrace the Franklin expedition, the doomed Franklin Arctic expedition. We're going to hike to mountaintop temples in Bhutan. We're going to go to the flaming tar barrel festival in Devon, England. We're going to go to the golden Eagle festival in Mongolia. We're going to spy on the Vatican from a Templar, a Knights Templar secret garden, uh, we're going to go to the Forbidden Zone around Chernobyl. We've got 70 trips, 30 countries. You should check them out. You should go to com slash trips or just email me directly at david at atlasobscura.com. It's really the trips are amazing and special and you should come with us.
2: And as a participant in two of those smaller versions of this, um, visiting the Woolworth Building, both to look at rare manuscripts and then also to look at maps, which included uh, Charles Lindbergh's map of Oklahoma that he used when he was delivering mail and they had the pencil marks of his air routes through oklahoma um, i am I am here to uh affirm how neat it was to be both in that incredibly cool space, the Art Deco building, the amazing view, but then to see and have curated for me um, those wonderful things by Sotheby's. And it was all really tidy and well done, David. So uh, we were great. I took both my kids to the two different ones. It's really, really, really cool. And and just kind of a perfect tidy little package. Awesome. Um,
0: thank you. Well, so come travel with us. Uh, so Finally, before we get to credits, we've been collecting your cocktail chatter. So we'd like to have a listener cocktail chatter, and so by that we mean we would love for you, and we'll we'll continue to try it this month, to send us something that is that you find delightful or interesting or infuriating or mesmerizing with a link, and uh, it's usually something you've read or seen, and that you that we can or experience or experience, but ideally with something with a link that we can share out and and mention. And so this, uh, I'm going to just quickly mention Blair with an E. Blair Cited at Blair Cited is uh, the our chatter this week, and and Blair Cited mentions that they really enjoyed this Nathan Heller piece in the New Yorker on bullshit jobs. And this, I just because I saw this link, I went and looked. It's a Nathan Heller's just. a uh,
1: what what yeah. if Nathan Heller should we not read? Yeah. I mean, really, like he he starts typing and I am hooked.
0: Yeah. So Nathan I, was I, actually I, I, a, a, I couldn't be more. And he was a colleague, colleague of ours, just so like, we can like, yeah, like, just en- like enjoy
1: s- revel in his pen and his yeah. success yeah. even more. But well,
0: yeah, this is sweet, this
2: beautiful writing.
0: This piece is just about p- the kind of bullshit jobs, like people who have jobs which, if they vanish tomorrow, no one would notice or care. And it's like. Uh, you know, they're they're great examples. I'm not going to slander anybody by naming any of them, but it's it's very, it's it's a extremely delightful piece based on a book about this. So check that out. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researchers Izzy Road, Izzy is under the weather. Get better, is. Follow us on Twitter at @slategabfest and send us your cocktail chatter ideas there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Happy 4th of July. We'll talk to you next week and join us in Philadelphia in three weeks on July 18th for a live show at the Keswick Theatre. Go to slate.com live for tickets.
3: Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family